invite the rest of us to turn in our Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 7. Um, the Red Pew Bible, I believe that's on page 917. 917. And the rest of us, or actually all of us, will get there to Matthew chapter 7. Just uh, take a moment to say thank you to those who serve in the sound booth. It is uh, at times a thankless task because you're unseen until things go wrong and then everything looks like it's your fault, but often it's not. And so I just want to say thank you for your, your hard work, dedication, coming in uh, an hour before the service to work through things and to stay late as well to prepare for another week as well all meaningful uh, uh, parts of our worship. Thank you for that. Matthew 7, 7 through 12. Let's read the scripture. Jesus, continuing his Sermon on the Mount, says, Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, Give good things to those who ask him. Lord, this morning, I can knock and I can ask and I can request that you would open our hearts, that we would see the value of innocence of heart, wholeness of heart. Lord, help us to see how much we need your Holy Spirit to pur purify our hearts, Lord. That we would not just perceive the world rightly, but that we would see you for who you are. It is so easy that we become deceived in this world. always do what's best for us, your children. And so, Father, I pray that we would not allow a wrong view of ourselves to cause us to be distracted from who you really are. May we not love other like material things in this world, but may we be always ravished with your beauty your holiness. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. In Poor Richard's Almanac, Ben Franklin, the editor of that periodical back in the 1700s, penned these words. It's the easiest thing in the world for a man to deceive himself. It's the easiest thing in the world 
for a man to deceive himself. Ben Franklin was not wrong. It is the easiest thing in the world. And there is a difference between lying and being self-deceived. A person who lies is perhaps more aware that they're intending to deceive with their words other people. A person who is self-deceived, on the other hand, usually is unconscious that they are convincing themselves of a narrative that's not true. Self-deception is a little bit different than lying. It does not always appear to the person who's believing a narrative that they are believing a lie, and so it's a bit unconscious. But our sin nature disposes us to believe false narratives. We believe wrongly about our own natures, we believe wrongly about the world, and we, we believe things about God that are just not true. They're things that the world tells us, and we absorb some of these into our souls. And uh, the tendency to believe, for example, that God is not good is very common. Christians, otherwise unbelievers, Christians who have a general platform of faith still can fall into this trap of believing that God is not good. And that common self-deception is uh, often born out of frustration. I want to share I want to share uh, uh, how this works with uh, a little fable, the fable of the fox and the grapes. Maybe you know this fable, I don't know. But in this fable, the fox, who's usually characterized by cunning, uh, is attracted to a succulent bunch of grapes. And he's looking at these grapes, and he really, really wants these grapes. And so he starts jumping up and leaping and trying to strain himself, but he just can't get the grapes that he's wanting. And after a few attempts at this, he gives up. And to cope with the frustration of loss, the fox begins to tell herself that she no longer really wants those grapes. Because after all, those grapes are really, they're starting to rot. They're actually rotting. They're not, it's, they're not going to be good anyway. But what she did was she lied to herself and created a narrative to cope with the frustration that she was not able to grasp what she really wanted. And she believed something that was not true. And in her belief, then she started to imagine something that was not true and started to act upon that false narrative. She became self deceived. Now, a fox doesn't have the gift of imagination. You and I have that gift because we are created in the image of God. We can project with our minds stories which may be true or may not be true, but we have the ability given to us by God, and the imagination is such a precious gift. But we live in a very broken world where there are many hurting people who then use their imaginations to view God in ways that he simply is not. People view God from their own personal pain and experience. People lose that which they love. 
and they begin to frame a view about God that is simply not true. We view him as against us, not for us. And we become self-deceived, and God becomes distant, and we start to look to other things to kind of give us the sense of longing that we are desiring. And we become divided in our heart between a profession with our mouth that we believe that God is sovereign and in control of events. But then because it appears as though he's, he's not active for us, we start to interpret that maybe he's just simply not being kind to us. And he's withholding. Well, this is an important point of reference because throughout this whole sermon... Jesus has been arguing that we need to have a wholeness of heart that's focused completely on Christ, completely on God alone, as a good heavenly father. And having a right view of ourselves and our heavenly father is critical. It's fundamental. In fact, it's the root of the gift of the Holy Spirit We have to acknowledge who we are and ask God to give us what we desperately need. We need the gift of the Holy Spirit to dwell within us to be able to frame rightly a view of God and the world around us. We've got to ask for the wholeness that we desperately need. In this text, on its own merits, may appear simply just to be about prayer itself, of just asking God and being persistent in your asking of God. But there's something fundamentally deeper here, and there's a connection to the whole sermon. After all, it's, it's in the Sermon on the Mount, and it relates to the themes that he's been preaching. And in verse uh, 12, which I didn't read in the previous uh, reading of this text actually relates here as well. It's the golden rule, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. <laughs> this all relates to how we have, what kind of view we have of our Heavenly Father. We won't use our imaginations to think about how we can bless other people if we're thinking wrongly about God. And it's so important that a wholeness of heart is ours. It is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And the idea that I want to show us through this text is how that wholeness of heart changes, excuse me, causes us to become like our generous Heavenly Father. We may be tempted to believe like the fox that God's not exactly all that I thought he was. <laughs> That's a problem. We can self-deceive ourselves and forget that we do have a generous heavenly father and so verses 7 through 11 form a illustration there's i believe two pieces to the illustration um, in which jesus is encouraging us to pray like a child and i want us to think about how wholeness of heart changes our worship of god and how we pray and communicate with him. The metaphor of a child, you, you see that in verses, um, verses uh, 9 and 10. 
a child in relationship with a father. Now, Jesus frequently in, the, in his teaching talks about children and uses the metaphor of a child, and it's often tied to the idea of innocence. A child who is very, obviously, we look at a child, they don't have a lot of power, they don't have a lot of strength, they're humble, but they're innocent. And there's a wholeness there that a child has that is enviable for adults. Because as we grow, you know, we, 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 we absorb a lot of hurts in the world. And so our hearts are not, we look fondly back on our childhood and remember such wonderful things that we experienced. I hope that's the case for most of us. But the wholeness of innocence, I believe, is incredibly important to grasp here in this metaphor of simply asking with the expectation, like a child who's going to get what he needs. But I want us to think about that metaphor of innocence for a moment. Because the innocence of a child is beautiful. It is a beautiful thing. And I want to encourage parents here too. You have long nights right now, some of you. And they're going to be difficult. But do make sure you take time to rejoice in the gift that God has given to you. Your child is a, an inheritance from the Lord. Your effort to raise them well is a collective good for, for our community. It's also a collective good for our country. I don't know if you realize this, but America is antinatal right now. Generally speaking, like the political class, children are seen as an economic burden. The Treasury Secretary has even so boldly said that motherhood is a drag on the economy. And abortion would be more favorable. What utter wickedness is that? Children are an inheritance, riches from the Lord. Jesus loves the little children. And a child's innocence reflects a heart that has not been disturbed by the traumatic experiences, whether it be sexual or physical or emotional. There's a beauty in a birth of a newborn baby. And as a frequent metaphor, Jesus talks about the care needed for children. And to inflict trauma upon a child is very close to being the unpardonable sin in Jesus' mind. Jesus said this in Matthew 18, verses 5 through 6. Jesus said, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened about his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. I'm bringing this up for purpose. Because the underlined word there is the word scandalizo. You can hear the word scandal in that word, which means to stumble or to cause to sin or to apostatize. And Jesus used this word to describe the eye and the hand in his sermon 
the eye and the hand, which might cause you to sin, it would be preferable for you to cut your eye out or cut your hand off and cast it into the fire. In other words, so that you could save your body. And he said that the intentional violation of a child's innocence is a scandal of eternal consequence. And the reason I believe this is so large in Jesus' eyes is because there's a wholeness of heart that's inherent to the innocence of a child. A child who grows up in a very nurturing yet firm environment will have one of the greatest opportunities to flourish in a fallen world. It is God's desire that we flourish in this world in spite of sin. And a child who has been hurt will instinctively turn away from adults and they will distrust them. See, sin wrecks our innocence. We need wholeness. And Jesus, by using the illustration of a child here, is instructing us to recognize we also need a wholeness and innocence of heart to have the kind of relationship with our Heavenly Father that asks for what we need with the expectation that our Heavenly Father won't give us a scorpion. Our Heavenly Father won't give us a snake. See, children who have been traumatized and they've lost their innocence, they distrust those who are above them and caring for them. A wholeness of heart is an innocence that is so precious that we ought not let anything violate it. We should not allow sin into the garden of our hearts because it destroys us and causes us to distrust our great and good God. I want to show you how wholeness or innocence is connected into the sermon by the concept of righteousness. Righteousness. When a man and a woman, when a man, when the original man and woman were without sin, they were naked and they were not ashamed. Children can be naked and not ashamed. Children should be innocent to the implications of their own sexuality. And as children grow, obviously the awareness of of sin causes them to cover up and cover their vulnerabilities. Eden is innocence. So when I believe the Bible talks about receiving one day the crown of righteousness, Paul used this, talking about his coming into the new heaven and entering into the presence of the Lord. He talked about anticipating the crown of righteousness which has been laid up for him. I believe personally that this is a restoration of our innocence that was lost in the Garden of Eden. Eden. See, you and I were created without sin to enjoy the sweet fellowship of a face-to-face relationship with God. And the restoration of our innocence is the gift of righteousness and purity and holiness 
so that we can see and fellowship with God himself. To be able to walk with God without shame will be sweet. There will be a sweetness as the innocence of a baby or the innocence of a newlywed. You may feel that I'm a little bit far afield from the text, but these are themes that are throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm, as we come to the end of the sermon, we have to kind of pull these themes together. But the innocence of a baby, the innocence of a newlywed is precious. One of the greatest pieces of biblical literature that we don't preach from these days is the Song of Solomon. And it's really a shame. I have, I have known pastors who did preach through it verse by verse and were nearly fired for doing so. It's sad, I suppose, but it is a beautiful love poem. In a general way, let me say that it describes the face-to-face -face innocence of marital love without any guilt and without any shame. It's a picture of happy marriage in which there's freedom and transparency. And it's also a prophetic poem describing the love that would exist between Christ and his church. You see, freedom from sin produces an innocence of heart so that we can be naked and unashamed in Christ's presence. Because Christ covers our sin with his righteousness and provides the innocence that we need. By faith alone, we marry up. And the wealth of our husband is transferred to us at the altar. The down payment of the Holy Spirit is anticipation of the righteousness that will be ours, that will glorify us, and the beauty that will shine, the transparency between us and the Lord will be so sweet, so innocent, so full. We will say one, that the one we have longed for all of our lives, we will see him as our own, and we will say like the bride in the song, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. One day soon, we're going to experience the perfect union with Christ, and he will look upon us, and we will not be ashamed, for there will no longer be any sin. See, wholeness of heart longs for the day. It even dreams of the day in which we will be united with the one that we love. If we're divided and distracted with the cares of this world, we will not be longing nor even dreaming of the day in which we will see Christ again. Wholeness of heart will not let anything or anyone but Christ occupy our own imaginations. And now we come closer to this text. In verses 7 to 8, we have a picture of wholeness which asks seeks and knocks verse 7 and 8 verse 7 we hear this kind of terse like repetitive ask seek knock it's repetitive it's kind of enjoyable to listen to in some ways but remarkably the last 
part of that metaphor, the knocking and the opening, is also found in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, in which the, the Spirit speaks to the churches, particularly the church of Laodicea, and says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. I believe that this metaphor of knocking and opening is tied to the lovesick poem of Song of Solomon. I believe that this is an allusion to the sweetness of desire for the man for the or the wife for the husband. Why would I make this claim? Because the ancient Jewish custom was to read the Song of Solomon during Passover week. Every single year. That's too much repetition not to ever be used as a metaphor or an illusion. Particularly by the apostles and particularly by Christ himself who experienced Passover week after week for 33 years. Second reason I say this is that the dreamlike atmosphere of Song of Solomon fits the context, really, of knocking and opening. Now, I'm not going to try to get fired here this morning, but we do need to understand the metaphor that is behind what I believe Revelation 3.20 is referring to and the knocking and the opening here. Ecclesiastes, Solomon himself said, for a dream comes with much busyness. We dream about that which occupies our hearts and our minds. There are several dreams in the Song of Solomon, and the second dream describes the bridegroom knocking at the door. And the bride says, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. This is what she hears on the other side of the door. She's torn for her desire to open, but she's in bed and she's conflicted. She's frustrated to find her love. Nevertheless, she goes up and she opens the door. She goes to open the door and she says, My beloved put his hand to the latch and my heart was thrilled within me. She arises and her hands are dripping with myrrh. Her hands cannot unlatch the door because of the excitement. And after struggle, she opens the door, but her beloved has turned and gone. Just like a dream. Frustrations multiply. And in her dream, she sees herself running through the streets looking for her husband, and she's torn and beaten by strangers, and her veil is ripped away. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Revelation 3.20 is a beautiful, remarkable invitation to return to one's first love. 
Jesus stands at the door and knocks. And the church in Laodicea had left its first love. They weren't dreaming about their husband. They were distracted with the cares of life. They had become lukewarm. The world had captured their affections and Jesus was knocking, but they weren't listening. See, Jesus had already told us you can't love two husbands. You can't have two masters. You can only love the one, but then you will hate the other. And here I believe Jesus is inviting us to knock as a lover knocks on the door. He wants us to come as he comes to us. Believing and imagining that on the other side of the door there will be an opening. Jesus is telling us that we ask not, we seek not, we knock not, because our hearts are divided. James, in James chapter 4, also refers to this, this, this dynamic and says the reason you, you don't have is because you don't ask and you want it to depend upon your own desires and then you know what he says? He calls us adulterers because we are not loving him first. You know, we grow older and more mature. We become captivated with the cares of life. We outgrow the newlywed phase of marriage, don't we? Sadly. We lose the innocence of our childhood. We become self-deceived thinking that the cares of life are there for our security, but they are not. We become anxious. What did Jesus say? He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Seek to have wholeness of heart. And all these things will be added to you. Why would you go about life so divided, fixed on the, fair, the cares of this world and, and lip service to Christ? This dividedness. You wonder why you're not flourishing. You're anxious about your life. Anxious about what you will eat or what you will wear. because we're not wholly in love with our Redeemer. We can't imagine God as our greatest treasure because we are so filled with the earthly treasures that we seek. Difficulties come and health crisis comes, debts start to rise. Oh, and then we start seeking, then we start asking, and then we start knocking. But then God doesn't respond in a timely manner like we thought he would. Or in the way that we would. And like the fox that was leaping, striving, we give up. And then we look at those grapes and we say, oh, God is not good. Oh, but we're deceiving ourselves. 
All along, though, we've not been seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. See, what you believe about God really does matter. Prayer should be a moment-to-moment communication with the with our love. Just as a couple who, in their newlywed phase of life, they're always consulting with one another, always checking to see what they would like, and they're talking to one another about everything. There's an innocence there, a wholeness. We ought to have that same childlike response to a father that says, I can ask him for anything at any time and in any place. Why do we not have joy regardless of our circumstances? Is it because we're not really believing that he is active and risen? Some of the old hymns are really powerful. And I actually wish that we would sing some of these a little bit more. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever foes may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. Rejoice, rejoice, O Christian. Lift up your voice and sing. Eternal hallelujahs to Jesus Christ the King. The hope of all who seek him, the help of all who find none other is so loving, so good, and kind. Is, have we stopped singing this because we don't believe it anymore? Have we moved away from our first love? There is a wholeness that can overcome deception, self-deception. And I believe in verses 9 through 10, Jesus is gently scolding us for our lack of sight, our lack of faith in God. And he asks us, says in verse, you know, 8 and 9, or 9 and 10, he says, you know, if you do these things for your children and you have an evil heart, why wouldn't you think that God who is absolutely perfect wouldn't do these things for you? What has caused you to lose sight of this truth that God is good. Is it possible that we have we have quenched the spirit? Is it possible even that we are not even born again? There's a parallel passage in Luke chapter 11 in which Luke records Jesus' teaching on the same theme. And he says, how much more then will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? You know, our hearts desire material goods. We think that that will bring us comfort. It will bring us security. But God gives us something infinitely greater. He gives us the comforter, the Holy Spirit, to those who ask. Romans 8.32 says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Yes, he will. 
death could not keep its hold on the Son, how could he not then freely give us all things through the Son? See, holiness of heart will liberate the heart to have freeness of discourse with our Heavenly Father. Wholeness of heart causes us then to become like our generous Heavenly Father. And this is the second part now, and, and really, we had to really think about the emphasis on wholeness and the innocence of a child and, and of a newlywed and just the kind of the intimate inter, uh, uh, discourse they have together with one another to be able to see now how this carries over to acting like adults. Because we come to verse 12, and in verse 12 he says, So, in other words, based on what I've told you about your Heavenly Father, whatever you wish that others would do for you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is where it's like, okay, so you can be a child and ask anything of your Heavenly Father, but now you need to put that into application as an adult and serve one another. This verse is commonly called the golden rule. Some people look at this, it's like, how does this fit? How does this fit here in the sermon? It's not at a place. This is a mark of wholeness that you begin to serve others as you would wish to be served. Adults know that the world does not revolve around them. Immature people will angle always for their preferences, their comforts, their vision of the good life, and require everyone to serve their ideas and vision. Today our society is collapsing because of self-centeredness, isn't it? But self-centeredness is not maturity. And I think at times you look at how things are going, you wonder, are, are there not children ruling this country? God does provide us our daily bread, doesn't he? He is a good heavenly father. He is kind and he is generous to us. He makes the sun to rise upon the just and the unjust. He sends the rain in the seasons. He provides our daily bread. But the daily bread that God gives can, come, can become entitlement. Entitlement is a gross abuse of God's grace. Many, many people claim Christ as their Savior and are self-deceived. They no more delight in God than in a rock. God is there for them. God is not the most precious being in all the world to them, and their anxiety levels show it when life seems to get out of control. And I know in my own heart, whenever I am feeling anxious, it's always because I've lost sight of God. We ought to ask ourselves, why am I not happy? Is it possibly because I feel entitlement? I think it's helpful for us to remember that salvation is all of grace through faith. 
faith looks in one direction only. It looks to God for everything. God is good to you because of his grace alone. We are criminal offenders. We don't deserve anything but hellfire. And we know that to be true. But now it's time to be an adult. We are to serve one another. We are to look out from our own personal interest and look outward to serve others. If you see God's goodness to you and you believe him to be a gracious heavenly father, take that truth and put it into practice in your own life as a follower of Christ. If your eye is full, then you will only see that and you can only say, well, I must serve other people. I must do this because of my great love for my heavenly father. Jesus in the sermon back in chapter 5 said, do you want to be sons of your father in heaven? Well, you need to learn the lesson. Your heavenly father is gracious to you, so you be gracious to others. This is the essence. We call it the golden rule, but the, it, the, the foundation of it is the eyes seeing that he is gracious to us. We will not ever grow up and act uh, as Christians ought to act if we feel the entitlement that this, I, I prayed the prayer, I was baptized, I, 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 I. No, it is of his grace that you are saved. He doesn't owe you anything. You're a criminal. He is a good and gracious Heavenly Father. And we can rejoice in that. You see, wholeness of heart causes us to become like our generous Heavenly Father. So we pray like a child, we act then like an adult. You know, the ease with which we once approached God, some of us, when we were young, put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ at a very young and tender age. That was my experience. And there is an ease in our children's voices to communicate things that we, we, we might not as adults communicate with our Heavenly Father. See if you, any of these, these words of children bring you back to a time of innocence and openness in your own relationship with him. Hank Age seven said, Dear Lord, thank you for the nice day today. You even fooled the weatherman. David at age seven said, Dear Lord, I need a raise in my allowance. Could you have one of your angels tell my father? Thank you. Philip at age eight said this, Dear Lord, do you ever get mad? My mother gets mad all the time, but she's only human. Yours truly, Philip. There is an innocence to children's voices that can say these things, and we look upon it with joy and delight. But is it possible that we have grown up, in a sense, not in a good way, we have become self-deceived by the cares of life? 
And as we grow older in the faith, I want to encourage you, we need to cultivate an undivided love for Christ. Don't be like a fox who creates counter-narratives out of frustration. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Pray like a child and then act like an adult. Be a blessing to someone today. Think and use your imagination to learn to love others as you have been loved. Be generous like your Heavenly Father. Let's pray.